first speaker this morning is Blake White. We had the great privilege of having Blake here Sunday morning for our adult Bible class and preaching in the morning service. I gave Blake the task in the morning adult Bible class to just give a primer on New Covenant theology. Did a great job, a lovely simple outline to take us through some of the very basic, uh, basic introduction to the whole thing. And it was excellent and well received by our folk here. We enjoyed his preaching in the morning, just enjoying his fellowship. Blake and his wife Alicia and their son, 14-month-old Josiah, live in what part of Texas? In Houston, you should know that. And past, helping do fellowship and pastor in what church? Mills Road Baptist Church. Mills Road Baptist Church. And uh, Blake has been here for a number of years now. We've enjoyed his fellowship, uh, his books, buy his books, read them. I would encourage you with his books and the other ones, buy two, keep one and give one away and then give yours away and buy another one. That's just a good process to do with all of these books. Uh, we enjoy his writing, uh, his really clear uh, presentation of the ministry of the Word, and in particular, some wonderful things on New Covenant theology. Uh, so Blake is going to come for his first session at this time. Thank you, Les. What a servant Les is, isn't he? Thankful for you, brother. All right, greetings from Mills Road Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. Been there about a year. Some of you will know Larry Newcomer, uh, who's been here on and off for 15, 20 years, uh, probably, and would go to the conference, I believe, in Salado, Texas, when John used to travel down there quite a bit. So glad to be uh, ministering along like-minded brother who's, who's eventually going to transition from the main preaching elder, and I'll start doing more preaching. So it's, it's the way church pastoral transitions ought to be done. It's a blessing. So you pastors who are getting ready to leave, don't leave your church alone. Find a young guy. There's lots there that'll, uh, that'll come along and it Fresh seminary grads that can come and learn how to be a pastor because seminary doesn't teach you much about how to be a pastor. So I'm finding that increasingly. Our, today we're going to talk about uh, the doctrine of union with Christ, something that I think is uh, very important and neglected, and that's what we're going to talk about uh, for both sessions. So let's one more time go ask the Lord to come meet us. Father, we're so thankful for your word incarnate, and thank you for your word written. Lord, what a blessing it is to be able to come here with freedom and open up what you've given us. And Lord, our, our prayer request this morning is simply make Christ more central. Cause him to be the center, not only in our thinking, but in our hearts. And I pray that you'd use me to do that, inspire all of us to keep him where he deserves and is supposed to be. Lord, we pray it in his name. Amen. All right, I've, uh, I've been a Christian for about 10 years, 10 years this year, and early on I was converted a freshman year in college, and early on I remember getting a letter, I don't remember who it was from, and they signed it, In Christ So-and-So. And I remember thinking, man, that's neat, In Christ, I like that. Didn't really understand what it meant, but I liked it, so I just started using it. And so in emails or letters, I would always sign, In Christ, Blake. Just seemed the Christian thing to do, and it's really only been the last few years that I've realized just how significant those two words really are for the whole Christian life and for the whole of the scriptures in Christ simply means to be a Christian Paul says that I knew a man in Christ and he could have just said I knew a Christian or he says Andronicus and Junia were in Christ before me in other words they were converted to Jesus before Paul was so to be in Christ is just another way of talking about being a Christian Christians are those in the Messiah 
And evangelical Christians, we claim to be Christ-centered, and this is good and right, for God is Christ-centered. Ephesians 1, God's plan, his purpose is to put all things in unity under Christ. Ephesians 1, 8-10. So it's good that evangelicals claim to be Christ-centered, and, and we need to be, and union with Christ keeps us Christ-centered as a doctrine, as an all-encompassing doctrine. Sadly, though, this doctrine seems to be neglected. Until, uh, until recently, thankfully. I mean, think in your mind, do you know full book-length treatments of this doctrine? If you know any, shout them out. Full book-length treatments of the doctrine of union with Christ. There's got to be at least one. So zero. All right. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, there are a couple, actually. There's uh, James Stewart has one called A Man in Christ, um, and it's... You know, it's, it's fairly helpful. Um, Lewis Smedes has a book called Union with Christ, a short, short little book that's good as well. And there's, there's a lot of chapters. Increasingly, there are chapters that deal with union with Christ in different aspects. Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Holy Spirit, if you don't have that book, it's a great book. And Union with Christ is, is a central theme in that book. Probably most helpful to me has been Richard Gaffin here in Philly, uh, Westminster, Philly. He's written a couple small books. His dissertation is called Resurrection and Redemption. Uh, very dense writing, but good. And then later, kind of the same book, but reworked by, uh, not by faith. Or I'm sorry, faith not by sight, I think. By faith not by sight. It's a little treatment of the Ordo Salutis and Union with Christ is central. So Gaffin's been helpful. Uh, Michael Horton, I don't have his new systematic theology. If you guys seen that, published by Zondervan. Uh, he's got a big chapter on union. I haven't read it yet. I bet that's going to be really helpful. And then Robert Lethem, who's written on the Trinity and written on Eastern Orthodoxy and written on the work of Christ. And in his book, The Work of Christ, he's got a large chapter on union with Christ and showing its centrality. And he's got a book coming out, maybe next year or the next year, on union with Christ. So that's probably going to be the go-to book. So just so you know what's out there and, and who's been helpful to me, I'm really looking forward to, to Lethem's book. It'll be published by PNR, uh, Presbyterian Informed. So, sadly, though, it's neglected. We're seeing this corrected, but it's been neglected. If we can't name books on it, that's, a, that's not good. So that's unfortunate because union with Christ, is Christ keeps Christ central. It's also unfortunate because the pervasiveness in the scriptures of this theme, particularly in Paul's letters. Traditional order, you know, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, traditionally is very unhelpful because you end up having this chain of redemption and Jesus is gone. You know, we can talk about these things that happen out here, calling, regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification, and where did Jesus go? So union with Christ in terms of the doctrine of salvation, it's the spoke of the will where the other blessings of salvation emanate from. So it keeps Christ in proper perspective and keeps the various aspects of salvation in proper perspective. Of all the traditions, the Reformed tradition has given more attention to this teaching. It's not to say that others don't believe it or neglect it, but Reformed theology has spent more time on union with Christ. In fact, in 1935, Swiss theologian Emil Bruner observed that the doctrine of union with Christ is the, quote, center of all Calvinistic thinking, end quote. That's a tad overstated, obviously, if we don't even have a book to go to yet, but I hope that's increasingly the case. The union with Christ, particularly with the doctrine of salvation, will become the center of Calvinistic, indeed evangelical, thinking. 
And he probably says this because it's so central in Calvin. I'm not sure how much time you spent in any of Calvin's writings, but particularly the Institutes, Union with Christ is so central for John Calvin's theology. There are a couple books more technical dealing with Calvin's view of union and how it was his way to, to combat the Roman Catholic Church. In fact, what's fascinating, if you think about the context, he's, he's dealing with Rome, and in his book he portrays what we would call the doctrine of sanctification. He called it regeneration, but he just means the process of transformation. He put that first in his Institutes and then dealt with judicial terms, justification. That's interesting. Yeah, we wouldn't do that, would we? If we're dealing with Roman Catholic Church, we would probably start with justification. But he doesn't because he knows union safeguards at all. He called it the twofold grace. Union with Christ both has the declarative aspects of salvation and the renewal aspects of salvation. So Calvin is a big theme in Calvin, and Gaffin is really just working from Calvin. Calvin Gaffin is in the, the, the Calvin, Murray, Voss, Ritterboss stream of Reformed theology. And he's wanting to get, give Calvin a voice again with this doctrine. So, but ultimately, we're not worried about tradition here, are we? We're worried about what the scriptures teach. And union with Christ is distinctly Pauline. Paul, Paul, John does too, but Paul is who we get most of our teaching from. And he uses this phrase all the time, all over the place. Paul's using this phrase or phrases like it. It occurs in all sorts of contexts, and it has different shades of meaning depending on the context. That's why it's kind of hard to define, because in each context, it has a different shade. The expression, in Christ, or in the Lord, or in Christ Jesus, or in Him, etc., these types of phrases occur 164 times in Paul's letters. 13 letters, 164 times. Some scholars say more. So it's, it's very important for Paul. In the in. The end, the datum ought to be taken in a, in a locative sense, I think, in terms of location. It describes the believer's new situation, the new sphere we're in, the new environment we're in. We've been transferred out of darkness into light, to use another author's language. We've been transferred from the realm of Adam into the realm of Christ. We're no longer occupied in flesh territory. Now we're in spirit territory. We've been rescued from the era of law and ushered into the era of grace, Romans 6.14. So being in Christ marks the end of the old existence and the beginning of the new existence. Scripture can speak of us being in Christ several places. It can also speak of Christ being in us. Or there's several verses that actually teach both in the very same passages in John. As Reformed theologian Anthony Hokema puts it, it would seem, therefore, that these two types of expression are interchangeable. Christ in us, us in Christ. When we were in Christ, Christ is also in us. Our living in him and his living in us are inseparable as finger and thumb. And this is from his book, Saved by Grace, which is fantastic. Probably the best one volume on the doctrine of salvation because union with Christ is central for Hokum as well. So if you don't have that book, grab it. So how should we define it? Like I said, it's really hard because there's just so, so many nuances depending on each use. But I found two definitions I liked. One, of course, is Grudem, very uh, well-known systematic theologian. He writes, Union with Christ is a phrase used to summarize several different relationships between believers and Christ, through which Christians receive every benefit of salvation. These relationships include the fact that we are in Christ, Christ is in us, we are like Christ, and we are with Christ. Another theologian named Kenneth Keithley, I'm not sure if you've seen this book called 
Theology for the Church, edited by Daniel Aiken. This chapter is on salvation, and that one is, is very helpful because, again, union with Christ is central for him. And this is how he defines it. It's an all-encompassing phrase that presents the two aspects of salvation, the positional component and the experiential components, encapsulating all the benefits of believers that believers receive from Jesus Christ. So you can see the definitions have to be appropriately comprehensive, all-embracive. So union with Christ is central, in particular, to the doctrine of salvation. You know, there's a lot of talk about what is the center of Paul's theology. And there's a lot of answers. Uh, the recent theology by Schreiner, I think it was God's glory in Christ. Well, that covers it all, doesn't it? Everything falls under. You have to have something broad to say, what is the center of Paul's thinking? Well, with the center of Paul's soteriology, his doctrine of salvation, I think we can say with confidence it's union with Christ. It's the center of Paul's soteriology, if not his, his theology in general. So here's Calvin. In the first paragraph of Book 3, dealing with salvation, here's what Calvin says. First, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us, end quote. So we receive no blessing of the gospel outside of our union with Christ. We've been blessed, as Ephesians 1 says, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. All of them are in Christ. All of God's goodness is mediated to us in union with the Messiah, our representative. So since all the blessings of salvation are found in Christ, union with Christ is the central blessing of the gospel. Now, one of the most important works with this reality in mind is John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Again, a tad dense, but really good book written, I think, in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s. And he's got a chapter on union in, with him as well. Union with Christ is central to the doctrine of salvation. And here's what he says. He says, Union with Christ underlies every step of the application of redemption. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation, not only in its application, but also in its once-for-all accomplishment in the finished work of Christ. So think of 1 Corinthians 1.30. You know this verse. Paul writes, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. We read over these phrases a lot. I'm going to try to point them out to you. It's because of him that we are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So in Christ, we are regenerated. In Christ, we are justified. In Christ, we are sanctified. In Christ, we are adopted. In Christ, we're redeemed from the power of Satan. And on and on we could go. So let's, let's turn to some scripture. Flip to Ephesians 1 if you have a Bible. Ephesians 1, and let's just walk along. I'm reading from the new NIV. You, you guys may not know the NIV was updated this year, 2011, and, and I, I didn't use the NIV before because there's various problems with it. And every place that I had a problem with the old NIV, the new NIV has, has made more accurate. So I highly recommend uh, this new, new updated NIV, 2011. 
Okay, let's look at Ephesians chapter 1. We're just going to look at 3 to 14, you know, one sentence here in Greek. And just notice the centrality of union with Christ for Paul. Read with me. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sights. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth in Christ, or in the Christ, in the Messiah. Verse 11, in him. We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. We'll stop there. Flip over to Colossians. You can see that union with Christ is the heart of Paul's religion. I tell you what, I'm just going to go through, since they're scattered in Colossians, you don't have to follow along. Or I guess you can try. I'm going to go fast. Verse 2, Colossians 1-2, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. 1-14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 1-16, for in him all things were created. Down to 1-19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Chapter 1, verse 22, but now he has reconciled you in Christ, physical body. Chapter 2, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Chapter 2, verse 6, so then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him. Verse 9, for in Christ all the fullness. Verse 10, and in Christ. Verse 11, in him. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through your faith in the working of God. Down to verse 13, God made you alive with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 20, since you died with Christ. Chapter 3, since then you've been raised with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 3, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 21, 20, children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord, or literally, in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 7, he's a dear brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 17, see to it that you complete the ministry you received in the Lord. All right, is Paul clear here? So these observations make it hard to disagree with James Stewart, who's one of the authors of one of the books on union with Christ. It's called A Man in Christ. And he says, The conviction has grown steadily upon me 
the union with Christ rather than justification or election or eschatology or indeed any of the other great apostolic themes is the real clue to an understanding of Paul's thought and experience. Similarly, Gaffin says, the central soteriological reality is union with the exalted Christ by spirit-created faith. So we see it's comprehensive, isn't it? Union with Christ is comprehensive. It's all-embracing. It's broad. It extends from eternity to eternity. Again, Murray puts it, as far back as we can go in tracing salvation to its foundation, we find union with Christ. It's not something tacked on. It's there from the outset, end quote. So our entire lives as believers are exercised in relation to Christ. It's his life, his values, his power, his rule. So we've got to ask, how does this come about? How does this reality come about? Or in other words, what's the instrument of union with Christ? Here's a quote from Luther. He answers it for us. Luther puts it, The doctrine of faith must be kept pure. Namely, that through faith you're so closely united with Christ that you and he turn, as it were, into one person, which cannot be separated from him but constantly clings to him, so that you can say with confidence, I am Christ. That is, Christ's righteousness, victory, life, etc., are mine. And Christ, in turn, says, I am this sinner. That is, his sins, death, etc., are mine because he clings to me and I to him for the, through faith... We've been joined together into one flesh and bone. So this faith couples Christ and me more closely than husband and wife are coupled. Calvin says the same thing. We won't read it. And so do many Reformed theologians. Gaffin, in his, both of his books, it's through faith. Letham, it's through faith. Uh, Bruce Demarest, it's through faith. Robert Raymond, it's through faith. So the answer uh, given is that we're united to Christ through faith. But what about those passages that speak of being united to Christ through baptism? Let's, let's go to Romans 6. We've already seen a little bit of Romans 6 from yesterday. Six. Let's just read 3 and 4. Or don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, ice Christon? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Or here's Galatians 3.27. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And we read Colossians 2.12. It says, having been buried with him in baptism. So when we were baptized, we were baptized into Christ. We were buried and raised with him in baptism. As Lewis Smedes, the author of the really the only other book that's book-length treatment on union with Christ, he says, Union with Christ occurs for us at the moment of our baptism. We did not die with him back in AD 30 at Calvary, outside Jerusalem, but rather in our own time at the baptismal fonts in our local church. There is no getting around Paul's plain language. So, hmm, is Roman Catholic Church right after all? 
Well, of course, it's not that simple, is it? Not that simple. Again, theologian Robert Lethem writes, Union with Christ exists in faith, but it's also connected in the New Testament with baptism. Now, Dr. Lethem, he's a Presbyterian minister. He goes on to say, Baptism and faith are integrally related. Integrally related. He even goes so far to say that baptism requires faith. Now, as a Baptist, I say amen. But as a Presbyterian, I'm not sure how his theology lines up with his practice here. So for, for, for the New Testament, see, Presbyterians uniquely, they uniquely separate faith and baptism. But for the New Testament, as well as for Baptists, for Catholics, for Lutherans, baptism and faith are connected. So think, think along church history. Augustine believed, like the New Testament, that faith and baptism were connected. But how did he deal with it? Because he baptized infants. Well, it was alien faith, right? The church believed on behalf of the infant. Later on, uh, later medieval theologians would say that the faith was on deposit in the treasury of merit. So the infant had faith, but it was just on deposit in the treasury of merit. Uh, Peter Lombard and others later would say that faith is infused by baptism. So the infant has faith infused by baptism. Uh, Luther, you know, Luther had a strong view of the word, very strong view of the word. As, as Chad mentioned, God acts through his word, and that's absolutely true. But he went too far to say that through the word, God acts on the infant. So the word creates faith in the infant is what Luther taught early on. But later on, when he's dealing with the pesky Anabaptists, he changes his tone to tad. He may even have changed his theology. I don't know Luther well enough to... No, if he did or not, but it, it certainly changed in tone anyway. So here, we, here comes Ulrich Zwingli, and he introduces a theological novelty to the church. And you remember, if you know any church history at all, Zwingli had a lot of pesky Anabaptist friends, and uh, he was this close, apparently, but politics. Uh, didn't think there could be enough reform if you got rid of infant baptism, so we kept with it. So we went back to the drawing board. How will we deal with faith, baptism, and infants. Well, he comes up with something new. And he knew he was teaching something new. Listen to what Zwingli says. Again, we're talking about separating faith and baptism. Zwingli was the first. This is what he said. In this matter of baptism, if I may be pardoned for saying it, I can only conclude that all the doctors have been in error from the time of the apostles. Whew. This is a serious and weighty assertion, and I make it with such reluctance that had I not been compelled to do so by contentious spirits, I would have preferred to keep silence. At many points, we all have to tread a different path from that taken either by ancient or more modern writers or by our own contemporaries. So Zwingli and Presbyterians following Zwingli, obviously here, separated faith and baptism, and that was new. So we're more, Baptists are more ancient here than even our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. So I appreciate Robert Lethem. <laughs> I appreciate Robert Lethem so much. But here I just want to push. I would love to ask, hold on, what are the implications here of what you're saying? But as I often say, I'm thankful for inconsistency in matters like this. So, but today, though, there's a lot of confusion over baptism. 2,000 years of history, so we're in a different day than the first century. But then there was zero confusion. 
The writing of the New Testament, there was zero confusion about baptism. For them, baptism was what some scholars, uh, Jimmy Dunn, Robert Stein, have called the conversion initiation experience. And they're talking about the whole package deal of becoming a Christian. So for them, baptism was simply part of this whole experience. So in the first century, new converts were baptized immediately for many reasons. There wasn't a need like today to sort things out or wait. They were baptized immediately. So for this reason, the New Testament writers, they can speak of baptism right alongside repentance or faith. This is why there's some groups that elevate baptism wrongly. Well, they have proof texts, don't they? There are baptism texts that are hard for Protestants to deal with. Well, it shouldn't be if we understand what's going on in the first century. It's not baptism alone. It's baptism as part of the whole experience. So Stein shows that He's a New Testament guy. He writes, he shows that repentance, baptism, receiving the Spirit, we can say confessing Jesus as Lord, all these are integral parts of becoming a Christian. Tom Schreiner, commenting on Romans 6, passage we just read, says, The reference to baptism is introduced as a designation for those who are believers in Christ. Since unbaptized Christians were virtually non-existent, to refer to those who were baptized is another way of describing those who are Christians, those who have put their faith in Christ. Or Victor Furnish, another New Testament scholar, says, To be baptized means to put on Christ, Galatians 3.27. stands for a change of dominion from that of Adam, the reign of law, sin, and death, to that of Christ, the reign of grace. So we're united to Christ in baptism, but as we see, that's, that doesn't mean that faith is excluded. So we ought to ask, is our emphasis on faith alone, sola fide, is that wrong? Because apparently for Paul it was baptism as well. Well, no, I don't think it's wrong because it fits the emphasis of the New Testament. Even in Romans 6, baptism isn't mentioned again. These passages are rare, but the passages on faith, they're all over the place. So I think our emphasis fits the emphasis of the New Testament. Faith and baptism belong together. For instance, Galatians 2.16, Paul says that we've believed, we've believed into Christ Jesus. Ice Christon, same phrase that he used when he talked about being baptized into Christ. So we're baptized into Christ, Christ and we believe into Christ because for him, they're one and the same. Also notice these parallels. In fact, just go there. Go to Galatians 3. Chapter 3, verse 26. And I want you to notice the parallel between the you are all and the all of you, at least in this translation. So verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Verse 27. For all of you were baptized into Christ. And you've clothed yourselves with Christ. So the you are all of verse 26, which mentions baptism, is parallel to the all of you in verse 27, which refers to faith. Or I may have them uh, reverse. Yeah, faith then baptism. Then we have Ephesians 3.17 that says Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. So the answer is, what is, what is the instrument? I want to answer baptism, but I, I need some time to qualify that. I would be just as happy saying union with Christ through faith. But there are passages that speak of union with Christ through baptism. But we should never separate faith and baptism. Private belief and public confession of it, including baptism, they go hand in hand. The two belong together. 
In the world of the New Testament, when a person believes, they are to be baptized. When they are baptized, they have believed. This is basic Baptist theology, but it's important when we're talking. As I mentioned, I named all the Reformed theologians that say union with Christ is through faith. So Stein, again, he uses a helpful analogy. If you who are married, if I were to ask you, when did you get married, there's probably several things you could answer with. You might say the saying of the vows. Or you might say the giving and receiving of the rings. Or you might say the pronouncement by the pastor. Or you might say the signing of the marriage license. Or you might say the sexual consummation. Which, which of these components actually resulted in you becoming married? Well, you probably wouldn't want to separate them. So the same with Christian conversion initiation. You could ask me, when did I become a Christian? And I could say, when I confessed Jesus as Lord. Or I could say, when I repented. Or I could say, when I received the Spirit. Or I could say, when I trusted Jesus. Or I could say, when I was baptized. But today, you've got to qualify that because of all the confusion. But in Paul's day, there wouldn't have to be any qualification at all. So we're united to Jesus in baptism. That's the instrument of union with Christ. But I hope we've seen, doesn't mean that baptism is now mechanical or overly sacramental. Paul could have easily said we're united to Christ through faith because for him the two go hand in hand. Okay, so we're united to Jesus. And there's a whole lot we could say. More could always be said, as we've already seen in this conference. But I want to focus in on two aspects of union with Christ. We could say so much, but I want to just focus on two aspects of Christ. First, what does it mean to be united with Christ as last Adam, and then what does it mean to be united to Christ as the true seed of Abraham? Jesus, we've seen the centrality of Jesus in the scriptures. He's the last Adam. He's the, he's the seed of Abraham. And we're going to focus in on those two aspects. And we think of Adam, there's several parallels. Again, more could be said, but what about image of God, or priest, or king, or representative head? There's these contrasts that we see with Adam and Christ all over the New Testament. And then we'll see with seed of Abraham several contrast as well between Jesus and Abraham and the relation there. So that's where we'll spend our time, mostly on Adam this time and mostly on Abraham next. So Adam was made in the image of God, right? Genesis 1:27. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them. And remember, in the ancient Near East, a king or ruler would set up their image in some distant part of their kingdom to let everyone know who's boss. He would set up the image Travelers would see this image and realize who ruled that area. And so God does this with all mankind. In other words, God rules the whole world. Mankind fills the whole world. This is what Adam was to do. He was to be a representative. Adam and Eve and all mankind following them were to perform a similar function. Mankind was made in the image of God in order to indicate God's rule. Not merely a region like the pagan kings and rulers, but the whole cosmos. So what exactly it means to be made in the image of God is debated, and I don't want to spend too much time here, but I think a more comprehensive definition fits, fits all the evidence best. You know, some major on functional aspects, on what we do. Others are more, uh, well, there's, there's all sorts of things, actually. But I think a comprehensive theological definition fits all of not only Genesis 1, but also what we have in the New Testament. So I think the people that emphasize the functional role are right and that it's primarily our role as God's vice regents over the creation and secondarily our mental and spiritual faculties. I think there are both structural and functional aspects to the image of God, but the functional, I think, is the emphasis, especially in Genesis. Old Testament scholar John Walton has shown that across the ancient world and the Hebrew Bible, humans are made 
in the image of God and that they embody his qualities and do his work. So structural and functional. They're symbols of his presence and they act on behalf as representatives. And we see in the scriptures that the notions of image and the notions of sonship, they're tied. We see that even in Genesis. We've already read, let us make mankind in our image, Genesis 1.26. But interestingly, a few chapters later, Genesis 5, this is what we have. We have, when Adam had lived 130 years, he made a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and named him Seth. So the notion of the image of God is tied to the notion of sonship or son of God. Now, Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't call Adam a son, maybe, maybe to, to avoid confusion, we're not sure. But later we see that there's, there is a connection between image and sonship. We also see, does anyone remember how Luke ends his genealogy? Son of God. Luke 3.38, Adam is called the son of God. So we already have the notion of image and sonship, of which Jesus is called both. Jesus came to repair the damage caused by the first Adam. He is the supreme image of God. He's the true human being who fully bears the divine image. Mankind was made in the image of God. Jesus Christ is the image of God. He uniquely reveals who God is. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. End quote. So Jesus, also unlike Adam, he's the faithful Son of God. Unlike Adam, Luke 3.38, Genesis 5. Unlike Adam, unlike Israel, Exodus 4.22. Unlike David, Jesus is the faithful son. Not only the faithful image, he's the faithful son. The one who alone is fully faithful to his father. The one who alone earned lordship. To pick up Fred and John's talk. So we have many passages. Some that are very clear, but I'm learning more and more that there's so many illusions between Christ and Adam in the New Testament. Uh, We'll just look at a few of them. Look at Philippians 2, verses 5 to 8. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another... Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So many scholars have seen an allusion to Adam here. Christ did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But Adam grasped at equality with God in Genesis 3. He wanted to be like God. As New Testament scholar Morna Hooker writes, Adam, created in the form and likeness of God, misunderstood his position and thought that the divine likeness was something in which he needed to grasp. His tragedy was that in seizing it, he lost it. Christ, the true Adam, understood that this likeness was already his by virtue of his relationship with God. Nevertheless, he made himself nothing. In, this, in verse 6, the, the phrase, in very nature God, or in the form of God, in morphe you, it harkens back to the image of God in Genesis 1. It echoes the image of God in Genesis 1. The phrase in Philippians, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own vantage, 
In the second half of verse 6, it harkens back to Genesis 3-5 where it says, You will be like God in the first temptation of the first image bearers. So while the first Adam attempted to grasp equality with God, the last Adam did not use his equality with God for his own advantage, but made himself nothing. He's a true and faithful image, the true and faithful son. We could go to Romans 1. We won't go there for time's sake, but Romans 1, 19 to 25, I think there's echoes and allusions of the Adam narrative there as well. So union with the last Adam as head. Let's spend some time thinking about this. Union with the last Adam as head. So when we're united to Christ, it's not as if our essences are merged together. Sometimes the, the language of mystical union is used, and that can be misunderstood. But it's primarily representative. It's primarily representative union. He's the representative head of his people. He fully obeyed the Father on our behalf. His obedience, therefore, is ours. We're in a relation of solidarity with him. All he did was for us. When he did it, we were regarded by God as in him and thus sharing in all that he achieved. So this is legal corporate solidarity. And this is just fundamental Jewish messianic theology. What's true of the Messiah is true of his people. What happens to the Messiah happens to them with him. This is fundamental Jewish messianic theology. We, the, this new NIV often will use Christ uh, and translate it Messiah, which I really like. There's other translations that are doing it now. Because we were so inoculated, we tend to think that Christ is Jesus' last name, as if his mom was Mary Christ and his dad was Joseph Christ. But Christ is a title. So we ought to translate it Jesus the Messiah, or maybe Jesus the King might, might even be better. And use that, especially in your preaching, just to grab the attention of your people. It's not Jesus' last name, Christ. There's a title here, Jesus the King. So what's true of him is true of us. Adam and Christ are both collective personalities. They're both representative heads of mankind and both have a dramatic effect on those whom they represent. They're two corporate heads of two contrasting orders of existence. Sinclair Ferguson writes, To be in Adam is to be united to him in such a way that all that Adam did in his representative capacity becomes mine and determines my existence, whether through sin leading to death or righteousness leading to life. In an analogous way, to be in Christ means that he has done for me representatively becomes mine actually. So one's location becomes the determiner for one's eternity. And you know the rule of real estate, right? Location, location, location. That's also the rule of soteriology. Location, location, location. Redemption is an act of relocation. So we could just summarize Paul's understanding of Christian redemption as the transition from being in Adam to being in Christ. It's the saving movement from one sphere of life, one realm of existence, to another. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read verses 14 to 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, one, 
and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So as head, Christ is the beginning of a whole new humanity. He's the one new man who represents the new humanity that comprises Jews and Gentiles who have been united to Christ as the inclusive representative of the new order. Adam is the head of the old age. Jesus is the head of the new age. I I don't hear this language enough. And this is just the structure of biblical eschatology. And thinking about all the contrasts in the New Testament. Ultimately, in fact, let me just quote Voss. I quoted this last year. The comprehensive antithesis of the first Adam and the last Adam, sin and righteousness, the flesh and the spirit, law and faith, and these are precisely the historic reflections of the one great transcendental antithesis between this world and the world to come. End quote. And this theology undergirds so much this age and the age to come, and it can be deceptive because the actual language isn't used as much as we might think. It's used a lot, but especially in the intertestamental period, this language is thorough. This age, the age to come, the present evil age, the age of righteousness. So all the contrast. Think in your mind about how Paul loves to use contrast in particular. We have the age of flesh. Voss mentioned a few here, but flesh, spirits, sin, grace. For us, easy. For, for others, not so easy. Law, grace. Romans 6.14. So there are all, there's all these contrasts. Adam, last Adam. Fundamentally, we're talking about the old age and the new age. Old covenant, new covenant. Old creation, new creation. Christ is the head of the new order, the new age. The first Adam is in charge of the present evil age, while the last Adam is in charge of the age to come, which has invaded the present through his rising from the dead. So the, we could just talk about the kingdom. The kingdom has come. We saw that last night. It's not fully here, but it has come. The age to come has begun. The new creation has dawned. Eschatology has been inaugurated in Christ's resurrection from the dead. So remember, the Old Testament doesn't see two different comings of Christ. So for the Old Testament and Jews in general, they looked forward to the end time, the day of the Lord. And several things would happen then. We have all these images, all these metaphors from the prophets. In that day, the Lord would restore the fortunes of his people. In that day, the Lord would raise his people from the dead, Ezekiel 37. Give them the spirit, Ezekiel 36. In that day, the, the, the new creation will come. The wilderness will blossom, Isaiah 32, Isaiah 44. It'll be a new exodus. So they're just grasping for language to say this new thing God is going to do. So they thought this would come at the end of time. And part of that, Daniel 12, would be the resurrection of the just and the unjust. This would all come at the end of days. What they did not expect was for one Jewish man to be raised in the middle of history, all by himself. Hence the language of first fruits. Jesus Christ is the first fruits. His resurrection guarantees that the rest of the harvest, that is our resurrection, is going to come. The resurrection and the giving of the Spirit promised in the prophets, those are the down payments. Those are the guarantee that the future has invaded the present and the future will continue to come. These are eschatological realities. So Jesus' empty tomb is evidence that the future has come now. It's the guarantee that the kingdom will fully be consummated in the future. So the new creation is here through the person and work of Jesus. 
New creation has come as the Spirit of God. Remember the language in Genesis 1-2? Spirit of God hovers over the waters of the old creation. So the Spirit comes on Mary and overshadows her when she conceives the Son of God, inaugurating the new creation. Luke 1-35. And commenting on this verse, Lethem says, His unique conception by the Holy Spirit set him apart as the inaugurator of a new humanity of which he as the second Adam was head. Clearest passages of this reality is Romans 5, a passage you're very familiar with. Let's flip over to Romans 5. Just notice in verse 14, Adam's called the pattern or the type of the one to come. So he makes, it, he makes a typological connection between the two. Look at the first part of verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sin. Now skip down to verse 18 and 19. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So Adam is the representative head of the old age, the whole human race, and he acts on behalf of his people. He sinned as our representative, we're sinners by virtue of being in corporate solidarity with him. And Christ is the new representative head, and he acts on behalf of the new humanity, which is God's elect people. And just a footnote here, I don't, <clears throat> I don't like to fight when we don't need to fight, but it's becoming increasingly popular to uh, four-point Calvinism. And I don't have a problem with that at all. It's not a, not a huge deal for me, but I just want to say something here. Um, there's, there's, Mark Driscoll is, is advocating this. Mark Driscoll's got a large following. And uh, Bruce Ware is advocating this. So the new book on the atonement that Jack mentioned, will, I'm sure will have this outlook. And, uh, and a few professors at Southern um, teach, teach four-point Calvinism. They, they believe in universal atonement. And a couple of them are very influential, and they have a lot of people following them. And I love these guys. I love Dr. Ware. Anytime Dr. Ware teaches, I come away loving the Lord more. And that's my kind of teacher. But they appeal to union with Christ uh, to advocate four-point Calvinism. There was a guy, he's a professor at Southwestern, who did his work on Calvin. And he said that Calvin held this view. And the idea is that they believe in election. I just don't think it's quite strong enough. And Christ died for all people indiscriminately. But you, you don't get those salvific benefits until you're united with Christ. Does that make sense? So Christ has made propitiation for every single person. Wrath has been absorbed, but they, they don't get the benefits until they plug in to Christ for union with Christ. So in some of these guys' theology, union with Christ is being used to advocate four-point Calvinism, but there's a huge problem here. Ephesians, Ephesians 1.4, we were chosen in him before the creation of the world. So union with Christ has three aspects. It has all eternity right there. We were elected. The elect were chosen in Christ before the creation of the world. So there's this predestinarian union. Then there's the salvation historical union at the cross. There is a sense in which when he died, we died. 
But then there's also the experiential union, and that's our baptism or our faith. So you can't, you can't use that. You can't use that because of Ephesians 1.4. Union with Christ is from all eternity. What Adam does is determinative for those in him. And what the eschatological Adam does is also determinative for those in him. So Adam, again, he represents this realm of sin and death, while Christ represents the realm of righteousness and life. Look at verse 20 and 21 of chapter 5. The law was brought in, we're in Romans 5 still, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So in the age of Adam, law and sin reigned, and we see that sin is a power. It's not so much what we do. Sin is a power here. It's a force, and same with righteousness. And again, underneath it, he could have just said, old age, new age, but he uses this language. So Paul unpacks that fact that we've died to the power of sin by being united to Christ in baptism in Romans 6. We've already read part of it. Uh, Let's go down to verse 14. I'll tell you what, let's just read it. Let's just read 6, 1 to 14. So 5, 20 and 21, there's these two realms, the realm of Adam, the realm of Christ, the realm of sin, the realm of righteousness. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? No way, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self, who we were in Adam, our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death has no mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Before we read verse 14, I just want to point out something. Look in verse 11 again. Count yourselves dead to sin. Consider it, reckon it, do the math. Count yourselves dead to sin, he's saying. But look at verse 2. He already said, we have died to sin. That's the structure of obedience in Paul. This is indicative and imperative. He's telling us through what he already told us was a reality about us. Okay, back to verse 14. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're no, you are not under sin, but under grace. It's not what it says, is it? That's sure what you would think, though, isn't it? Where does this law come from? 
He's been talking about, he mentioned it in verse 20, but he's been talking about sin and righteousness. Then in verse 14, he says, For because sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under the law, but under grace. So we would expect, we would expect this, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you're not under sin, but under grace. But it's not what he says. And the reason is, for Paul, the law represents the old age. In the equation, in the Adam-Christ equation, the law is on the side of Adam. They're contrasting salvation historical powers or realms. John says this too. You don't have to flip there, but let me read John 1, 16 and 17. Out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. Now, this is one of the better translations of this verse. The uh, ESV has a pawn, but the word is anti. Paul knows, the, I mean, John knows the word epi, and he uses anti. Anti never means upon. It means in place of or instead of. So this is a great translation. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So grace in place of grace already given. The new covenant replaces the old covenant. The new age replaces the old age. So with the Adam-Christ contrast, the law's over there. With the old age, new age contrast, the law's on the side of the old age. And baptism brings one out of Adam, out of law, out of sin, out of that sphere. And we're no longer under law, but now we're under grace. And of course, under grace refers to the new age, inaugurated at Christ's resurrection. Sin ruled under the old age, but Galatians 1.4, Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. I mean, I think this two-age thing undergirds the whole argument of Galatians. Galatians 1.4, redeem us from the present evil age. The end of Galatians, new creation. Same thing, could have said new age. 1 Corinthians 15 is obvious. Is Romans 5 and, and 1 Corinthians 15 are the, the clearest passages because 1 Corinthians 15 actually says, last Adam. We're still talking about Adam and Christ and their role as representative head. Look at verse 21 and 22. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 47, he's called the second man. Interesting, I think his, his language is actually insightful because he could have used the label second Adam and he didn't, probably because in many ways Noah was the second Adam. So Christ is the second man over the second creation in the last Adam. Adam, again, represents all humanity while Christ represents the new humanity. So from both Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, we see that Adam and Christ are corporate persons with representative acts. They are representative heads of two contrasting orders of life, two ages, two world periods, in a word, two creations. So what each representative head does is determinative for those in him as their representative. So the next thing we're going to look at is union with the last Adam and, and particularly as the notion of kingship. But I think before... Starting this, we might as well go ahead and take a break a tad early if that's all right.